We were never meant to be robots that didn't feel depression from time to time. We were never meant to be robots that didn't feel anxiety from time to time. I believe that our framework of refusing to medicalize at every turn and refusing to try to pop a pill, I'm coming from a place of honoring the validity of your emotions. If I say that you just have anxiety or depression, I'm just saying that it's an illness and it's a problem and let's give you a pill so you don't feel it. Rather than saying, let's look at what's at the root of that. What did you go through? What did you endure? What have you experienced? To me, that's so much more loving. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril here with my co-host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. So Elliot, last week, I let listeners know that we were going to do a little collaboration this week after several episodes that were just you, your messages on mental health, which I loved so much. I do want to apologize to the listeners because the perfectionist in me was a little frustrated with the audio. Tim did everything under the sun possible, but unfortunately we had some glitches. And so sometimes in the middle of a very strong statement that you were making that was really empowering and important it would just be an audio cut out. And so I do want to apologize for that. We are doing everything we can because these messages, I'd love to share them more regularly. Obviously, the mental health series is something we definitely want to share with the Love and Life family. But certainly there's other messages that you will give over the years that would be so important for us to share with the community as well. So I want to talk about, Elliot, the notion that you brought up, and I went and revisited all the episodes and took some notes, things that struck me that I wanted to elaborate on here today you called what we're experiencing right now a mental health war. And I totally agree. And I think this is a war that can be framed in various ways. But before I jump into my thoughts, elaborate a little bit more about what the war is, what battle is happening that would be even different from maybe a generation ago or two generations ago. Yes, the mental health war was starting to take place probably in the early 10s. 2010, 11, 12, 13, but certainly COVID was like the atom bomb for mental health. And so everyone who's struggles in depression, loneliness, addiction, Mm -hmm. anxiety, all magnified times 10. And the statistics bear that out really clearly as the message is stated. So that's the first aspect of the war that makes it different. I was thinking to myself the other day when I'm driving, because this is what psychologists do when we're out driving. I was thinking people are going to look back at the pandemic and people are going to say what we heard growing up about the depression Mm. that did you live through the depression what was it like for your family during depression so we consider that like a massive Mm -hmm. if not the for the world wars would probably be the most singular societal event in america in that century and i think the pandemic era is the same and we know the depression no pun intended (laughs) the depression that came Mm -hmm. out of the depression Mm -hmm was crucial, even though the statistics back then weren't nearly the same, but I know the spike in suicides and other things at that era were just absolutely remarkable. People just jumping off of skyscrapers regularly, workers that were working, trying to make a living. And so I I just was thinking to myself, that same kind of demarcation line for an entire century Mm -hmm. happened with COVID and all that happened on the auxiliary with the political climate, the vax or not vax climate, all that stuff ended up creating a more tense American society. Polarized. Polarized for sure. And I think all of that contributed to what I'm calling now a mental health war. 
where my students today, including late high school students into college students today, seemingly have a lens and perspective that they're supposed to be depressed Mm -hmm. and borderline suicidal at times, rather than Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was the rare student who felt that defeated or that identified in their mental health. That's the two primarily aspects of war, but then on the spiritual side is the spiritual warfare between good and evil, light and darkness, Jesus and Satan, which I reflect on in those messages quite specifically. Yeah, and when you say that, it strikes me that you didn't have to actually live through the depression because our parents were born probably like mid to tail end of the depression, and yet their entire childhoods was were framed fra- in it yes. all. Yeah. The mm-hmm. savings, the never wasting anything, all these values, maybe they would have had them anyway, but probably they were exponentially greater. And then dad, of course, tried to push against that. He didn't want to have to scrimp yeah. and save because he had lived that as a child. So now that he had made something of himself through his education and hard work, he wanted to live life a little bit more. But mom responded to what she went through as a child, mm-hmm. just post-depression of on the other side of wanting to save. And so those values sometimes were in conflict to a degree like they are in any spousal connection. There's going to be those values that there's an underlying value that's similar or the response goes in a different direction, either which way. So, Elliot, I want to underscore something because, again, I wanted to talk about this war because I do see it as multifaceted. And so one of the things you're saying right here is that we're losing the war in the sense that there's been almost a defeatist mentality, certainly with Gen Z, Mm -hmm. which is your kids, my nieces and nephews, people that we love dearly. And many of our audience have nieces, nephews, or children themselves in that generation. And we're concerned because of almost this, like you said, over-identification to the point where from our framework as Gen X's, and I hate to like make things so generational, but as we spoke to just a moment ago with the depression, when we go through certain realities, and it's they call it a cohort effect in developmental psychology, where you lived a, an adolescence that was different than your kids. We lived an adolescence that was quite different. And so we have to look at the realities of what we, that nurture piece of our development, that what we experience on the sociological realm. And so what we're seeing, I'm seeing as well, and that's why I wanted to speak to the war element, almost like a giving up. And that's why I really resist the identifying and internalizing an identity of a mental illness. I have depression. I Mm -hmm. own it. It's part of me. I am depressed or I have anxiety. And you spoke to that so eloquently in the anxiety episode. So since that's the first one, let's start there. You talked about how even in our day as kids, we might say, oh, I'm super nervous about that exam, right? Or I'm super like freaked out to go and give that class presentation. All normal, totally normal, nothing pathological whatsoever about that, those butterflies, that nervous energy. That's how we framed it. Now it's being framed as Mm -hmm. I have anxiety. My social anxiety does not allow me to go to parties. My public speaking anxiety does not allow me to give a class presentation. Well, since the dawn of time, people have been nervous to get up in front of people and speak. So that part of the war seems like we're giving up. We're resigning ourselves. Go ahead. No, I was going to say the number one fear still of people is public speaking. And it's not just that individuals are feeling defeated and giving up, but our entire educational and corporate systemic is catering to it. So I get IEP plans from so many of my students that say simply things like, don't have to take the quiz in the same time period or in the same room. Don't have to give any public presentations, can do them privately. And I'm like, it just takes the complete learning modular formation or development or encouragement on my end out of the equation. 
So I often receive those plans. And I'd say, Karen, at least a third of my students now have those. And I receive those plans, talk to the students, but also encourage them that I'm going to try my best to even not look at their plan a whole lot and just treat them as I would every single other student. Let's walk through stuff together. And you don't even have to tell me certain things. If there's others you have to tell me, tell me. Otherwise, if we have a presentation or we have this opportunity, let's just walk through and see how we do. And I'll be right here to walk you and nurture and encourage and coach you through rather than just having this piece of paper that automatically excludes us from often the very elements that are the most important in my class. That troubles me so much because we know that the only way to move through that uncomfortable emotion is to push through it, show ourselves we can do it, and then enjoy and bask in the like, oh, I was totally freaked out about that, but I did it. And then to derive so much self-satisfaction and self-confidence. No one can hand you that hey, I'll just hand you this self-confidence and you won't be freaked out about giving a class presentation anymore. No one can hand you self-esteem. It's impossible. No matter how much your parents and teachers love you, your professors want to help you, there's an element of having to own it for yourself. And with these accommodations, then young people are being denied the very experience that will allow them to build that self-confidence. And a pill can't do it. No, and even even your support animal can't do it. Oh, no, uh-uh. And we have, we have lots of wonderful, beautiful support animals on campus, like every school does now in the yeah. nation, where literally people are having, there's schools that have ponies and horses and these accommodations, snakes, and, and, and I'm all about animals. Well, I love animals. We're very animal. I, I would enjoy that very much. But the idea that that animal is now needed in order for this person to function. So it's like we're purposely creating enormous bonds of codependency for just the basic elements of confidence, esteem, worth, and value. And again, our school's no different than all the other schools. And I've heard lots and lots of crazy stories about the accommodations that are even sometimes legally. This is an example of something, and I think we're going to speak to this throughout this episode, of something that started with really good intentions. Absolutely, Absolutely. you want to help every young person achieve their fullest potential. And sometimes, in some instances, that does necessitate an accommodation to level the playing field. However... (laughs) We're now to the point where we've resigned ourselves and just assumed, we assume fragility, we assume weakness, we assume incompetence. And I think that's the most disempowering thing we can do as a developmental psychologist and as an aunt and as someone who loves young people and believes in their potential. By lowering the bar, lowering the bar, we are we are experiencing the exact opposite of what these accommodations and these pure intentions, I believe that they are 99% of the time, pure intentions, the the outcome that they are designed for. And the exclusivity of not being in the same social belonging realm of each class or each circumstance or each performance, that does something to your soul as well. We know how critical it is for every young person in particular to feel they belong to their subgroup or Mm -hmm. their subculture. Mm -hmm. And the accommodations that are a little bit, in my opinion, over the top, cater to an exclusivity mm. and an individualism that denies them the very thing they're often so desperate for. And I imagine in the athletic world, can you imagine if there's like accommodation like, well, I'm just not as quick as the other player. So that player or this, this practice now will have to be done at a slower mm. pace in order to you know, accommodate my speed mm. or something. Or this saxophonist who is not as good as the other saxophonist, but still has the right to be in the first chair because they're a good person and they're morally sound or something. So we're going to just go ahead and let the performance be less. You know, we have certain areas still of group bonding, educational, extracurricular activities where we seemingly are not allowing that. But how far away is it? Who knows? It seems like in many realms, we have lost that meritocracy where we 
want iron to sharpen iron. And yeah, you're going to have two guys on the court and one's going to be quicker and he's going to be on the starting five and the other one's not. And no accommodation is going to change that. We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love & Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or my Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love & Life family. And then that speaks to, Elliot, when you talked about kind of this identifying and then pulling away from the typical expectations produces the loneliness because now I'm the kid who doesn't do the class presentations with everyone else. I'm the kid who has the accommodations. I'm not even in the room when the quiz is happening. And that feeds into even, and you, you hedged around this, but I, even some narcissism, I think, could develop. Not a, mm-hmm. not a true narcissistic not personality disorder. disorder, which we know happens yeah. as a personality disorder between the zero and two. But traits of narcissism, I'm special. <laughs> yeah, we're all special. We're all God's children. Mm-hmm. We're all deeply loved and deeply valued. That being said, those narcissistic elements could arise because I've been told I need this accommodation, that accommodation, I need this support animal, I need this. And pretty soon we are not again enhancing and building strength of character and empathy. This this young person has now learned everyone needs to cater to me. And that's highly narcissistic and really debilitating when you think about trying to forge a romantic partnership or lifelong adult friendships. And according to the job prospectus and fulfillment research about young people, this generation, they are not flooding the market. They want to do their own thing, their own way, their own time. And if you require them to be at work at eight o'clock and they don't feel like doing it, they're not coming. So this sense of entitlement has led to a completely different job market to where, I don't know about in Indiana, but up here in the Chicago suburbs, places you would never think of having problems, having workers like Taco Bell and McDonald's often are shut down and only can do drive through because people didn't come to work and they can't find people. And, and it's just a remark that's, I picked those two because that's, that's normally where your younger yeah. generation, your 16 to 25 year old is going to work. And so you see it now in that kind of spirit as well. This, well, I'm used to having accommodations. I'm used to be able to do what I feel like doing and I don't have to answer to the authority. They have to answer to me and therefore I'm not working. So that, that'll, that'll trickle down for generations to come as well. And as we're talking, you know, I don't want us to sound like the old Gen X fogies or like these kids now that, you know, I don't want to do that. That's not my intention. It's not our intention. It's just that having lived through different social milieus, having lived through generational trends, now that we are Gen X, we've seen how some of these elements, we have to bring social media into this conversation. I think we're remiss if we don't. And you talked about it in your loneliness episode, again, to highlight some of the, the things that stuck out to me from that message that social media seems to be, oh my goodness, right here in my hand, in the palm of my hand, I've got a community. And we talk about the love and life community, the love and life family. Mm-hmm. But one of the tensions I've been feeling as we've talked about and we've shared with the audience is that I know that social media connection isn't the same. The research shows it's not the same. It doesn't fill that deep need for community to be seen and heard. It does not fill it in any way, shape, or form compared to face-to-face interactions. And in fact, we know that more screen time is related to depression and anxiety. So I have a very internal tension and I'm wrestling with growing our community, wanting to reach the people that we believe we have a word of encouragement and empowerment for, and yet knowing that that necessitates me being on social media, which almost endorses this form of, I don't even want to say like 
communication because there's some communication that happens, but it's really a form of a, a way of spending hours per day. I'm endorsing that if our primary way of reaching folks is through social media, and I don't want to endorse that. I am happy mm. when I see any of us, and I'm talking Gen X, millennial, boomers, Gen Z, when I see people putting their phones away and they're not on the table at the restaurant, when I see people walking and there's no one reaching to check their phone, I mean, you talk about the number of times people check their phone per day. I'm just so not cool with the impact on our mental health. Again, getting back to the war mindset, one of the main battlefields of this war is our relationship with social media and how it exacerbates loneliness. And yet for us to try to build a community, it seems that we kind of have to play that game. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, one, I'm hesitant to call Love and Life a community or any other podcast relationship connection community, even though you're using the term in a glowingly wonderful, connective way. But part of the reason I like to preach and teach at small churches rather than large churches is for community. Right true depth of relationship where I know every single person in the church by name. They know me. We know each other's weaknesses, strengths, families, extended families. And I'm not anti-big church at all, but when they say it's a big church community, I'm like, how do you know 1,500 to 7,000 people? You can't. So yeah, that tension, even with us in this podcast, is real to me as well. And that's why when we start offering the consultations and then some of the listeners chose to reach out and purchase consultations with me or you or in your group format you're doing, then to me that starts to build true community. Right. Now we're having individualistic, heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul, mind-to-mind, spirit-to-spirit. And yes, there's some transactional element as far as exchange of money, but it still is real. It's real-life conversation, whether it's phone, Zoom, FaceTime. And so this whole social media piece has certainly been linked to the exasperation with COVID, I think we'll look Mm. back in generations to come and say those two together. And as I said in one of the messages, the man who created the ability to scroll so quickly and move so fast now regrets the very decision of his creation and has been very public, very public about it. He's not. I appreciate when those individuals come out and say unintended consequence of the technology I created. And they're geniuses and they've made a fortune off it, but yeah. he still has a moral conscience. I, I like that he's present enough. Yeah, he's like, okay, this this didn't go quite the way I wanted it to go. So get to one other point about that is each of the messages I gave with all the statistics, all the information, all the biblical scripture supporting the perspectives, every single message came back to some wellness factors. Yes. Your hydration, your mm-hmm. sleep, your social belonging, your connectivity your present mindfulness and meditation and prayer and worship. And and so for you and I, as people who are highly busy, highly functioning podcasters, teachers, educators, family members, same is true for us. And so I 1000% have supported some of your internal friction (laughs) with how much time to spend on social media on behalf of us, on behalf of yourself, on behalf of the community and the listening audience, because I think it's not worth the sacrifice. So we might reach less people and maybe there's some out there that are hurting that you're the perfect voice for them if you're out there sending your reels, but not at your own expense, Mm -hmm. not where you're starting to battle some of the very things we're preaching against Mm -hmm. and sharing against with more anxiety or more stress or feeling like, I think what you were feeling and experiencing, which we know our young people do all the time, is literally a compulsion Mm -hmm. to stay on Mm -hmm. and feeling like, in your case, feeling like this is a responsibility to my listeners, to my community, which is totally understandable. It's a very parental, mm-hmm. you know, supportive, pastoral, shepherding kind of role. Like, my ladies are out there. I got to yeah. be on there. But then 
what about the other parts right. of your life? You know, and so yeah, so it's a uh, we're just talking very raw and transparent here about these realities. Yeah, as you said, we're just being raw and real and full disclosure. I have felt at times like, wow, did I abandon my my ladies out there? And for any who are still listening, like it wasn't my intention. I'm just trying to figure out that healthy balance that honors my values and honors the values again that we as a love and life platform are trying to espouse. And so for me to be on social media so often and then tell you on social media how it's not that good for you, I'm like, this is, yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're interested in processing further as you align your mind, body, and spirit, we're here for you. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with us tab. There you can book individual or couples sessions. Or sign up for one of our support groups. Purchase one session or a multiple session package. We'd love to work with you. Sign up at loveandlifemedia.com. So Elliot, yeah, we talked about anxiety. We talked about the loneliness, also getting to depression. And what I loved about the depression episode, you were quoting scripture, which of course, as Christians, it is always so comforting for me to go to the scriptures to remember that every feeling I've ever had, and certainly in my darkest days, when I went, I I would never say I had depression because again, I think that that's just a term that most people do not have. But certainly there are seasons after these wicked breakups, our community knows all about that, that I would have these very dark valleys where it was really hard to see hope. And it's always comforting to go, yeah, so did David. (laughs) You know, so did all the prophets. I mean, so did Jesus when he was like, I'm going to have to go on a cross tomorrow. I mean, but to normalize that life, the full range of emotions is normal. And would we want it any other way? Would we want to, to grieve without feeling sorrow? That would be, to me, not even honoring the person we've lost, for example, if we're talking about grieving a death. Yeah. And so this brings me to the other piece of the mental health war. Another way to frame this war is the war that you know I feel with every fiber of my being, which is the war, which it really feels like humanity versus pharmaceutical corporations. Mm-hmm. I get that this immediately goes to a place of people getting polarized because of COVID, all this. But I, this was something that I cared about back in the 70s when dad would tell us that big pharma, before that was even a normal kind of term that many people were familiar with, he would say, you know, the pharmaceutical corporations and the medical community, they're in bed together and that is their way of treating. There's, and, and of course, dad was at the health food store with the Chinese herbs and always into alternative medicines or alternative treatments, I should say. But my the reason I frame this as a war, and I hope that anyone who has resisted, because I have had people on social media be very upset, because I think what happens is, and if I can just have a moment to really explain my heart, is that I think people feel that if I say that the treatment for depression or the treatment for anxiety, that I do not prefer a pharmaceutical intervention What they hear sometimes is, you're not taking this seriously. You are saying that it's not legitimate, that my pain is not legitimate, that my emotions aren't legitimate. Because they have been taught that a drug is the cure because it's that serious. It's a psychiatric illness. And I was struck by throughout every sermon that you gave, you never once talked about these conditions being illnesses, being psychiatric illnesses. Oh, that's very important. And I appreciate Mm -hmm. that, of course. You know, I loved that. Mm -hmm. 
But again, the psychiatric community has slipped into, and you've mentioned the first episode that was kind of an overview, which we haven't shared yet. You mentioned that the originators of the DSM, and that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, those are medical doctors. They are psychiatrists, right? So remember, anyone who's not in our field may not remember that psychiatrists are the medical doctors, psychologists have PhDs and have the more therapeutic training, although psychologists can have just research-based training and they can talk about cognition and all things that have nothing to do with therapy. Mm. But psychiatrists have that medical background. I know I'm on my soapbox here. I mean, it definitely feels like I'm lecturing (laughs) at a class right now. Don't don't slow down. Keep going. But anyway, the point is that these medical doctors, even the ones who started, according to what you had said, and I didn't know this, Elliot, Mm -hmm. that they started this DSM to try to get a sense of how do we categorize? Again, your intentions. Mm-hmm. If someone comes to me with, with some concerns, wouldn't it be helpful that we could give some sort of diagnosis, some sort of label? That way we know, oh, yeah. these set of symptoms, we've seen it over here. And with this patient over here, this works. So now we have a treatment plan, the best of intentions, but they never wanted it to get to the point where people would then identify with that diagnosis, identify with that label because, and getting back to why our philosophy is not to go straight to a medicalized model, an illness model, is because it is so easy then to do what you talked about a few minutes ago, to over-identify, to internalize that diagnosis and then say, I have this, I am this, and that's all I can ever expect from myself. And that seems like the most disempowering thing that we could do to ourselves or to anyone we love and care about. So again, anyone who's ever taken issue with my anti-pharma stance, my hesitance, and my reticence to be where so many other folks in our field are, boom, boom, pill, 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 is because I honor the humanity that we all have of the full range of emotions. We were never meant to be robots that didn't feel depression from time to time. We were never meant to be robots that didn't feel anxiety from time to time. I believe that our framework of refusing to medicalize at every turn and refusing to try to pop a pill, I'm coming from a place of honoring the validity of your emotions. If I say that you just have anxiety or depression, I'm just saying that it's an illness and it's a problem and let's give you a pill so you don't feel it. Rather than saying, let's look at what's at the root of that. What did you go through? What did you endure? What have you experienced? To me, that's so much more loving. And so I've said my piece. <laughs> what do you think? That's no, good. I, the messages were very intentional. I didn't call it mental illness. There is some mental illness. I have some good friends that are very schizophrenic and it's very sad. And without high level medications, they cannot function. So you and I are not anti-medication for certain scenarios, certain ways, certain places, certain people. But that's as a last scenario and not erasing or eradicating the normalization of human condition. The message series was called Mental Health and Wellness, right? To try to talk about how do we get healthy and well. Some of us have predisposition to be larger and to gain weight simpler. Some of us have predisposition to not be able to gain weight. And so part of the human condition piece is recognizing the normalization of our emotions. That's why I talked about sadness is one of the seven primary emotions. And so society, especially American society that wants to eliminate sadness and literally wants you to grieve the loss of a loved one and be done with it in hours, if not days, it's just ridiculous. I love the Old Testament Israelites who would mourn for like 40 days when a king would die and everyone stopped working and they still were in community. They Mm -hmm. still would have festivals and festivals, not the right term. They still would have um, gatherings and food and 
and be one, but to act like any sadness is automatic depression or any nervousness is automatic anxiety creates such a personification mm. that we then end up owning in a way that Jesus never intended. In fact, within those predispositions is where Jesus says, in your weakness, I'm strong. Mm. And so that, that whole framework that dad did such a beautiful job with me of saying, Elliot, your energy is your gift. But he was straight up with me too, but you will struggle in school. He never <laughs> told me, you'll be okay. You'll get straight A's. You're going to be able to sit still. No, he was the opposite. He's like, you got to do this. You got to stay in, whether it was at Seven Hills or he moved me to Aiken or somewhere else that would have been a little maybe easier for me. He wasn't going to let me drop out, but he was just saying, hey, school's going to be really hard for you. But all these are just examples, again, of who we are, what we are, how we are, and dad refusing to allow me to have medication for the ADHD, which might have worked and led to other problems, maybe, but it might have worked as far as the conditional element of being able to sit still in school. I think I would have lost 50% of my who I am as in a child of God, who God called me to be, and how I'm effective within my own energy. Those are just examples. And we're not trying to say anyone who's on medication right now and listening to this, you're flawed, failed, or wrong. We're just saying, please look at the bigger mm -hmm. picture, the more holistic picture, and be willing to question it. Be willing to research and check things out and wonder, why am I feeling this way when I'm on this medication? Right. right. Even the insert that comes with the medication is, I mean, many of these side effects that are incredibly debilitating, it's, it's right there. Elliot, I think it's wise that you bring up, because there are, are many, many people, I, I don't know, I think it's one in four women in America are on an SSRI antidepressant. And so for anyone who is interested in kind of considering a different route, please do taper. If you go cold turkey off these medications, there can be- Very dangerous. Right. You can have horrible withdrawal mm -hmm. symptoms, which then make you think, oh, I'm so depressed now that it must've been the medication was working. But really what it is, is that your brain has now been rewired because of the- disruption to your perturbation is how they call it, to your neurotransmitter activity, you want to taper off under the care of, obviously, I would say a doctor who's a little bit more into the holistic and natural approach. Yeah, for sure. I want to flip back within the realm of my own personal experience. So when I was having the adrenal failure and I recognized something was up, I didn't know what yet, and having anxiety, severe anxiety for the first time in my life and walking through that, which was a fantastic clinical experience for me, though I don't want to ever no. go through it again. I did what we were taught to do by dad is just do something dramatic. <laughs> and so I went cold turkey off all caffeine and all sugars and threw my body into more shock and increased the anxiety. Now, long-term, I moved in that direction to try to get off many of those elements or at least moderation way better than my personality normally does. But that's an example again. And so many of the clients that I've worked with over the last 30 years, especially crisis clients who will have their own epiphany or their own revelation or their own just decision you know what? I want to get off some of these medications. And often it's many, many people are taking three, four, five at a time, even young people. And you got to do that very, very carefully. Because we talk about suicidal results of SSRIs and other medications. It's often in that transition stage when someone that might have been profoundly sad, turned into some depression, medicate it, want to get off, go cold turkey, and then all of a sudden someone who's never thought about suicide is thinking about it a lot. Just had a client like that a couple weeks ago. I would have never, ever guessed in their just basic spirit and temperament, personality, that that would have been a factor. But it was. And it was part of the transition issue. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really good point because it should be noted that since 2004, the FDA has had a black box warning on SSRIs that they are related to suicidal and homicidal ideation. That seems very counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. 
that I would take a pill to help me feel less depressed. And yet I know that one of the results could be that I'm now suicidal or I want to kill other people. And we've had instances where mothers kill their Mm -hmm. children and themselves. Especially mothers. That's so, so, so rare. And again, I I don't want to speak out Mm -hmm. of turn because I haven't done the research there. And I do believe that the FDA black box warning that I'm speaking to is for children. I believe that's from zero to 18. Because again, so many of these drugs are never tested on children. And then they go ahead and release them in smaller dosages Mm -hmm. for children. And yet they've never had the long-term studies. That's another conversation for another day, which we will have to get into because obviously I just can't shut up about it. But I do believe that that's not the case for adults. But- we do see this. Same principles. Yeah, and apply, we do see this. Yeah. We see so much evidence of this. Our satisfaction and joy in life is directly related to our satisfaction and joy in our relationships. Elliot and I are here to help. We'd love to design a workshop, seminar, or weekend retreat for your organization. We'll bring the psych research, of course, along with over 60 years of combined experience in psychotherapy. We'll share science-based therapeutic techniques within the context of a Christian worldview. We can level up in our relationships. Contact our producer, Tim May, at tim at loveandlifemedia.com to book us. Well, what I wanted to say, Elliot, as we wrap this up, this kind of like, I don't know, recap of what you talked about in those messages, I want to say three things that really stuck out to me that were takeaway messages for me personally. One, I loved the action items that you framed even the title of the message with an action because taking action, and again, you, you know, one of the uh, intros I talked about dad saying in, in our last newsletter, I talked about dad just take, telling you to take charge on the basketball court. And mm-hmm. we were always told to take charge. And I just so thankful that we had that ideology. Which came out of his wounds, not his successes. But no, his successes were from taking charge. What do you mean? No, I mean, the mentality came out of suffering so that he recognized, I will no longer be passive. I will no longer receive stuff from other people that doesn't fit me, who I am as a man and what I plan on doing in my life. He'd been, he he framed it out of the pain and suffering. We didn't have to frame, take charge out of that. I'm just saying for those listeners who've had really difficult pasts, our mother and father had very challenging paths and came out of that with the assertiveness to take charge and to not see ADHD as my curse, right. which I later realized he had the same thing. <laughs> so what? he'd have been telling me that. He was going to Kinko's at know, two in the morning. What? Doesn't every dad do that? All, exactly. <laughs> or start playing jazz piano at five after he slept for three hours, right? So. Yeah, all that. So I'm just, I was just trying to frame again what you're saying about take yes. charge. And yes, so the mental health messages were don't just receive this, mm-hmm. even if it's really brutally difficult and hard. Don't just receive it. We need to receive it, but don't just receive it. Then respond, then react, then take charge, then move, make something happen. Yeah. And I'm glad you underscore that. It is important that we share our can do, take charge insisting on movement. You use that word so often, like movement, just and moving through and persevering that we frame that in the context of empathy. And I know that I think sometimes when I get so passionate, <laughs> that I think that sometimes the empathy can get lost. And I, I this was something that struck me with the sermon I heard at our church recently. The pastor said that he'd heard it put this way, no one cares what you know until they know you care. And I thought, gosh, I hope that our listeners know 
that we care deeply and that even when we come with some intensity, and again, I can't help it. I'm my father's daughter. Like dad was so passionate, his eyes would bug out of his head, you know? Like he said things with authority because he believed them, but it was always because he believed that this was going to be supportive and empowering and encouraging and helpful. So I just thought that sometimes my pharma fury is what I'm calling it now. <laughs> I need yeah, to know, I need work. to make sure that people know that I care in the midst of that. So that was Absolutely. really good what you said there. <laughs> and remember, remember phraseology dad would use, he'd say things like rising from the ashes. That's pretty profound because that's what he had to do his whole life until he made it. Right. And so, yeah, he'd say those things to me all the time when he was trying to fire me up for a game, although I did not need to be fired up very often. I was usually really ready to go. And so I think, why did dad inspire so many people when he wasn't extroverted and didn't even enjoy deeper relationships? He loved to see the human condition manifested in strength and perseverance and endurance and rising up into those challenges, even if you have really difficult things that have hit you that are worthy of a depressive time frame mm -hmm. or mourning. Mm -hmm or deep grieving, mm -hmm. or some fear, mm -hmm. anxiousness, mm -hmm. right? And so that, that part, I think, is spoken through us, and mom and dad being overcomers has helped us to spur this on. So I, I never take your passion as lacking empathy, because you are extremely empathic in your just nature. But I think it's your desire to inspire change, just like mm -hmm. we were taught to do, to really help people change and grow and think outside of the box and new perspectives and new windows. One of my clients the other day that has been a part of my connection now since the podcast we started doing it so she's been with us a long time said how do you just reframe everything so naturally i said we were taught to we were really trained to and that reframing perspective is biblical it is spiritual it is appropriate jesus tells us to have an abundant life not an average life mm -hmm. jesus says our marriages should be great mm -hmm. be a reflection of his love for the church not just decent all right, and same thing with these mental health war mm -hmm. issues. They're, they're legit, they're here. I think they're partly demonic as well. We can talk about yeah, that some other time. It. So yeah, we're all gonna battle mm -hmm. it. We're all gonna be involved with, but how are we gonna be in yep. the battle? Are we gonna be active and pursuing and researching and praying and crying and grieving and walking and talking and sharing? And to that end, we've always talked about this, but when I started getting really involved with the podcast, it was just post COVID and it wasn't gonna happen, but you and I would love to do live things. Yeah. If they think we have energy here, put us in front of a group of people, right? Then it doubles up. Yeah, I, I won't be able to sit still and you won't stop talking. So combined, it'll be really good. I in know, a good way, but not in a and then I'm going to have the PowerPoint and the research. It's, it's going to get going. Be... So we want to be to create a better community with our listeners by doing things more live yeah. and not feel like, oh, there's no way right. that people could afford us because we will be more than willing to sacrificially connect and create opportunities for inspiration, motivation, and entering this war with your eyes fully mm -hmm. open. Two more takeaway. The first takeaway message for me from this series was action, that to frame whatever you're experiencing emotionally with a bit of action. And the second piece that I loved was committing to memory verses that can inspire mm. us. And that I know that that's something I've been working on and I want to stop for a second. And to give scripture about scripture, there's many places in the mm -hmm. Bible that talk about hiding the word mm -hmm. in our heart. And so certainly as a clinician who's a pastor as well, it's amazing how many verses will just yeah. come up in the conversation of reframing and renaming yeah. and reclaiming. And so I didn't mean to cut you off, no, but I'm good. saying scripture even teaches us to do that very well, thing. Well, so powerful. I mean, even like you were talking about, like so many verses come to mind that I haven't even tried to commit to memory, but I've just heard so often. So I may not know exactly in the Bible where it is, but it comes to mind. So, yeah. and, and the scripture also tells us that if we are committed to the Lord and serving Him, 
the Holy Spirit will help mm-hmm. us with the words we're saying and will draw upon himself. And will pray for us when we don't have words. And I love that. When you are so sad, the Holy Spirit prays on your behalf with words that we cannot yeah. express. Like you don't even have the words. You are just so demoralized and so wrecked. You can know that the Holy Spirit is like, I got you. You're never outside of God's purview. Yeah. You're never outside of his care, yeah. his hand, his heart. When I think about just the cognitive element that, is, of course, is such a foundational part of this conversation and just our philosophy, again, coming from our parents, but just the verse, take captive every thought. So I think that's a, another takeaway that I think can be so helpful in ways that we don't even realize. Like you said, that someone would say the reframe can come easily to you because it's practiced. And once we, it's like a muscle memory. Once we've rehearsed this, yes, mm-hmm. it becomes more automatic. That's the last application in the last message, mediation of your mind message, which is all about this. The last point was Philippians 4, 9, when Paul says, practice these yes. things. It's a practice. We have to practice yes. them. For you and I, we grew up with it where it was demanded and mandated. Yeah. So yes, it's natural. doesn't mean we don't have to still mm-hmm. do it regularly because stuff hits mm-hmm. the fan, right? <laughs> Stuff's really hard. So I'll catch myself bemoaning and complaining and whining and, mm-hmm. and then catch myself fast and start reframing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll pray about it as well. And when I'm, when I'm thinking about things that bring me fear, I know it's not Jesus. Right. All right. And so I'm not only reframing, but I'm countering the spiritual war involved there, the battle to take captive mm-hmm. our mind. Yeah. And to commit to memory, get, having that practice really leads me to my third takeaway, take which is just these habits. So what does that mean for us? We know that our, if you look at any given day and we can do an an entire series on something about getting your daily habits and you spoke Mm -hmm. to that in terms of sleep, in terms of nutrition, hydration, you spoke to all of that. So exercise so uh, eloquently in the series. Also habits, like I just came across this little tidbit of information that reading just six minutes a day reduces stress and anxiety Mm -hmm. by 68%. And that's not even reading self-help like reading anything. Mm, But again, when we think about generational differences, because we have our phones, because we're watching videos on YouTube, we're not reading the way that prior generations did. Something like that, a tiny little six minute a day habit. Those kinds of habits are things that we can integrate. And like I said, we could do, we could do a challenge with, with the listeners. We could say, Hey, let's look at a week and just write down what you did. No, no trying to adjust anything. Just here's what you did at 8 a.m., 9 a.m. And then look at what did your activity and your behavior, what does that say about your values, about your belief? Mm -hmm. Because if I believe that six minutes a day, if I really believe it will reduce my stress and anxiety, then I'm going to read six minutes a day. So just looking at those habits, and that's something, again, that we can just get into in so many future episodes, the tangible ways. And that's what I loved. You always brought the practical application to the message as well, which is just consistent with our values in love and life. And I want to thank you for sharing that. We will work on the glitches so that we can share the rest of the series because I know you've got... Sunday, this Sunday is Attitude of Gratitude. All me. Mm-hmm. There's always something to be grateful for. So that's a great teaser for the next part of this series. And Elliot, thanks again for putting this out there to the love and life community and to the world. Yeah, next time, just try to get a little more spirited about your mm-hmm. response. Yeah. Give me a little more energy yeah. and passion. I clearly had nothing to say. and we do want to tell the listeners the community that now that school's up and running i got my routines down that i am freeing up my fridays again i do have some blocks that are nice and open where hopefully you and i can do some more lives and do some more interaction on the fly and we will keep people posted on what we're we're going to do some strategizing for how to make sure that we are 
being more available and in, in the way that we can. All right, so I'll close in prayer. Yes, please. Yes, Lord, we understand that there is a mental health war and we uh, know, Lord, that you are the victor. You are the king. You are our Lord and Savior. And uh, even in these mental health battles, Lord, you teach us to be uh, fully surrendered to you, uh, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that even in our greatest moments of despairs, you will lift us up. You will help us rise from the ashes. Lord, the human condition is full of pain and sadness and challenge and difficulty and nervousness, but it doesn't have to overcome us, doesn't have to be our identity. In fact, we can have a gracious and grateful attitude even in the midst of those pains and that alone, Lord, recognizing your peace, your sovereignty, your Holy Spirit, that alone will give us a perspective and a framework that allows us to persevere, endure, and even become better, stronger, greater, more passionate, more giving, more generous, more open to people, to community, to love and life. So we thank you, Lord, for the power of our mind, body, and our spirit. May we use it for your glory. Amen. Amen. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.